Interesting stuff we're looking at here today. How many people are looking forward to the Super Bowl today? Yes, all right, well done, a few of us. Now, I think this year's Super Bowl really ties in uh, very fittingly with what we've been looking at in Ephesians here because Paul has been talking about the old man and laying down the old man and walking in the new man, right? Well, this year's Super Bowl portrays for us the old man versus the new man, doesn't it? Very wonderfully. You got Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, the old versus the new. And I think it's a great picture because we oftentimes like to think as Christians, well, we're never going to have to deal with the old man again. We're new in Christ now. But that old man just keeps finding a way to get in there, doesn't he? Just keeps finding a way. Sometimes he disguises himself. We're in New Jersey now. Disguises himself, making you think like, no, it's not the old man. And yet we realize it is the same old man that just seems to keep coming in there. And you see, as this new life in Christ, we do realize that we are in Christ now. He's given us great blessings, great uh, ability to live for him. But we're still wrestling with that old man. We're still wanting to lay aside the old man. And that's what Paul has been addressing and, and dealing with in the book of Ephesians, how we're to lay aside the old and we're to walk in the new. And so as we get into chapter five, we're gonna continue to look at what this walk in Christ looks like. Now, there's a bit of an unfortunate chapter break in Ephesians five because really Paul's building off of what he has just ended with at the end of chapter four. When we read that wonderful verse there in verse 32, of chapter four, look at it with me there. It says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So what we were seeing earlier in chapter four is that there were those that came along who are living according to the old self and they've really built up just a hardened heart. In fact, in verse 19, it said that they are, are past feeling. In other words, that they've gone to a point where they are living so headstrong in their sin that there's no longer any conviction or conscience coming against them that's sort of yelling out to them, this is not good, this is the wrong way to go, this is not helpful, healthy, or holy for you. Turn around, but they're past feeling, they're just continuing on with a hard heartedness. But Paul says, for the believer, you're not to be walking like that, and you're especially not to be walking like that towards one another. You're to be what? Kind and tenderhearted. Not having a hard heart. To be tenderhearted towards one another. Why? Because these are the very qualities that God has demonstrated toward us. When he showered upon us his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his love. Wasn't God very tenderhearted towards us when we were undeserving to receive that? When we were doing nothing to earn that, God demonstrate that to us. So as Paul continues on to show what this new life in Christ is like, this new man that we're to walk and look like, he's dealt with how we're to walk in unity in chapter four, also to walk in purity. But now in chapter five, he lays out how we're to walk in love, how we're to walk in love. Look at what he says in verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So as chapter five begins, Paul's stating that our lives should be resembling and reflecting God. People should be able to look at us and, and, and see Christ. 
Earlier, he said that we should no longer live like the rest of the Gentiles, who were the hard-hearted ones living as they want. We should no longer live like the rest of the Gentiles. Now he says, you're to live now like Christ. You're to imitate God. Now that word imitate in the Greek is a great word. It's the word mimetes, and it's where we get our English word mimic. So we're to like mimic God. Now, when we think of mimic today, we think of that, you know, bratty kid in class that would mimic or mock the teacher behind their back when they're maybe writing on the chalkboard or whatever, right? And they're mocking, they're mimicking, and we think of a a mimic like that. And so it kind of has sort of a negative view oftentimes in our mind. But in Paul's day, a mimic, uh, a a mimetes was something that someone did as a a well-honed craft, in a sense, as they are in the in the drama and the stage plays that they're doing there. To be a mimetes was a craft, a skill. It was not a derogatory thing as we would think today. For a person to be a good mimetes, they would need to observe and watch closely the subject that they were mimicking, wouldn't they? They can't just hear about somebody go, okay, I'm going to mimic them. They would need to watch them, observe them, probably spend time with them. You know, there's a lot of Christians that fail to be imitators of God because they've failed simply to spend time with the Lord. They fail to spend that time where they're observing Jesus, whether it be in reading through God's word and seeing the very heart of God or, or in prayer where they're just meeting and communing with God, hearing from him. They failed to spend that time observing the subject who is the Lord, hearing from him, knowing him, and thus have failed to be proper imitators of God. But notice what Paul says here, be imitators of God as what? As dear children, as dear children. You see, as believers in Christ, we become children of God. We, we become born again, he's made us children of God, children that are well cared for, and it should cause us to be those that want to spend time with him. Now, many of you remember your childhood and how oftentimes you would watch your parents and you'd want to imitate them and imitate the things they were doing, right? I remember, you know, I'd be driving in my car. My dad was always driving and I'd be sitting in the back seat and I would always take the squeegee that was laying in the back seat there and that'd be my steering wheel. And I'd begin to drive the car just like my dad was doing, right? And I'd kind of imitate him. And every time he'd turn a corner, I'd be like turning the corner and there'd be my mom getting on his back for going over the speed limit and he'd get frustrated. And so I'd start getting frustrated at people we'd drive by just to kind of be imitating him, you know, and try to do whatever he's doing, right? Having fun. And people would be looking at me going, what is that kid yelling at me for? It's just, you know, what we did, right? It was kind of fun. And, and so we learned that process. It wasn't that bad. I'm just kidding. They're probably watching right now, just mortified. Oh my goodness. But love you, mom and dad. You're good parents. But, um, and, and so we learned that practice as children, how we imitated But here's the thing is that we recognize we've got a a wonderful heavenly father that has just bestowed such goodness upon us, grace, forgiveness, and, and love that now Paul says, imitate that, follow that. Be be an example of that yourself. It's like we're in this in this heavenly game of Simon says, right? You ever remember the game Simon says? How many people remember that? It's, we got time. Let's have a quick round of Simon Says. Let's all stand up. We're going to play a quick game of Simon Says. Let's all stand up right now, okay? Go ahead. Stand up. I didn't say Simon Says. Sit down. You guys lost. All of you lost right there. Okay. 
The rest of you stay in your seats. You knew it, right? You were on it. You're like, no, I'm not playing that. You're on it. You won. Okay. But it's like we're playing this great game of God says. God says, do this. And, and we're called to do it. God says, do that. We're like, I want to do that. Why? Because God's calling us to do that. And we're called in God's work to be imitators of God. So whatever God is directing us in, it's that what that we want to do. But we don't know what God is directing us in unless we're spending time in his word and in prayer and receiving from him. How we need to be observing the subject that the Lord is and learning of him that we might be imitators of him. So we're going to look in chapter 5 here over the next couple of weeks and seeing some things that God is very clearly for us. Some of the things to imitate, mainly that God is love. We're going to see later on in, in, in next week that God is light. But here we see this this fact that God is love. Look at what Paul says in verse two. And he says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. So if we're gonna be imitators of God, no better place to start than the subject of love, right? Because love becomes kind of all encompassing now of the very qualities that God is. It just kind of covers all the bases for us. Just like, you know, we look at in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And then all those other fruits are just kind of an outflow of that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So we see love is just all-encompassing. But we're not just told to walk in love. We're given an example here now of what love looks like. And we see here that love costs something. Love is a very giving or sacrificial attribute. Because Paul writes there, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself also for us. Love is something that costs something. It's giving. And Jesus modeled that and demonstrated that for us so wonderfully. In fact, the Word of God highlights this and speaks about this in, in John 15 verse 13. Greater love is known than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, we can talk all we want and share with one another how much we love them. But love begins to be clearly seen and evidenced by what you do when it's put into action. And Jesus did that for us. And not only did Christ model it, but now he's called us all to follow in that example. And he made that super clear, didn't he? Even with his own disciples when he was with them. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. Now we hear that and we think a new commandment. Well, I mean, every, they were always told, going right back to the Old Testament, Leviticus, love one another. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. So you hear Jesus say a new commandment I give you and you kind of go, well, that's not really a new commandment. That's always been there love one another, but the new commandment was that Jesus says, not just love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. That was the new commandment that he's passing on and sharing with people that I don't want you just to love your neighbor, because a lot of people turn that around and said, well, if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, well, then I first must need to learn how to really love myself. 
<laughs> I got to focus on myself if I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. And people turned around and they made all these weird things. Jesus says, no, I want you to love as I've loved you. And we've already seen clearly through God's word how Christ loved us. And he loved us by giving his life for us. That was the new commandment that Jesus is focusing on. To love one another sacrificially. And it's this kind of love that, notice what Paul says, it becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to God. See, it becomes very pleasing to God. This brings to mind the, the sacrifices that you'd read in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapters 1 to 3 specifically detail a few of these sacrifices. The first one in Leviticus 1 is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a sacrifice that the worshiper would give where he gave everything over to God. And it was a voluntary sacrifice. And all these sacrifices all were pointing ahead to the final and finished work that Jesus would do in his sacrifice. They were all pointing ahead to Christ. And just as the burnt offering was a voluntary sacrifice, notice what Jesus did. He says in John 10, verse 18, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. Jesus willingly, voluntarily, came and gave his life as a sacrifice. And as he did, it was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. In Leviticus chapter 1, three times, we hear of how the sacrifice the burnt offering was a sweet-smelling aroma. It's like when you put down a big, juicy steak on the barbecue and that aroma that comes up. Mm, isn't it good? And even more so, it's usually when your neighbors are cooking that barbecue and it's wafting in your yard that you're like, oh man, how come my barbecue never smells as good as that? You just start like, mm. You're like, man, that's good. And that's the idea is that this goes up before the Lord as this sweet-smelling aroma. He's pleased by it. See, when we walk in love, we're gonna be living a very sacrificial life. A life that not only becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to God, but becomes something very attractive to others. Where they start picking up the scent and going, what is that, why? Why is that person living like that? How come my life never smells that good what am i missing and we get to portray and show and reveal it's through jesus and we get to live this life as christ has called us to love one another as he has loved us and and when we begin to live a sacrificial life we get to bring jesus into it and demonstrate that this is how jesus loved me and it becomes that sweet smelling aroma to god see a lot of people think man you want me to live my life for God sacrificially? Love is a sacrifice? Well, that sounds pretty like heavy, man. That sounds like I'm never gonna enjoy life now. Like it's always gonna be about other people and, and you know, what blessing is that gonna be for me? We often think that way and it holds us back sometimes from really living sacrificially because we get too focused on self and what we want, what we wanna achieve or earn or have in our lives but can I just say when you live a sacrificial life to God and it is pleasing to him as a sweet smelling aroma if it's pleasing to God it's going to be or should be pleasing to you in other words when you live a life that is followed in the will of God what he has for you to do there's no greater enjoyment you're going to have in life than by living according to his will and doing that which is pleasing to him. What becomes pleasing to him is gonna be greatly pleasing to you or 
rather a blessing to you because you realize you're living out what you've been created to do. See, there's no joy when you live life in this self-absorption when you're just focused on self, thinking like, if I do this for myself, that's where I'm gonna be happy. You know, Jesus, give your life away. Live sacrificially, walk in love. And love becomes that verb where it's an action you do. It's carrying out something that is blessing others and ultimately pleasing to God, which in turn becomes the greatest, most joy-filled, satisfying life that you can live. It's quite simple. Anything that we do that becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to God is gonna be very fulfilling for us. John Stott said, as with Christ, so with us, self-sacrificial love is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It is thus a striking truth that sacrificial love for others becomes a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. And that becomes, again, that blessing in our life. Well, Paul now turns from self-sacrifice to look at self-indulgence. And it's kind of a weird turn he makes here in our text, in this chapter, because it looks like he's kind of going completely off on another tangent, but what he's doing is he's saying, listen, we've just held up what true love looks like. But now he says, let me reveal to you what love doesn't look like. What the world oftentimes holds up as love is not really love at all. It's more so lust. And Paul's gonna nail some of those things here as we continue on. Look at verse three. It says, but fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So again, after what Paul addressed as what love looks like, Paul makes clear for us what love does not look like. And once again, he tells us to do what? To put it away. These are things of the old man. Put them away, put on the new. So he details some of these things. Fornication, this is the Greek word porneia, where we get our English word pornography. And this is speaking of any kind of sexual sin in a broad sense. It's sex or physical contact that's apart from God's ideal. And God's ideal is clear. It's within the confines of marriage between a husband and wife, a male and a female. That's where sex is to be enjoyed. Outside of marriage, it is not to be seen or addressed or dealt with in life. And in fact, any kind of, of arousal together with another person outside of marriage would fall under fornication. This is not just a sexual act, but fornication covers a broad sense where it's just any kind of arousal that'd be taking place. Single people, be careful of what you're engaging in. Because Paul says fornication isn't just the act, but it's engaging in things that might lead up to the act or, or be very much the arousal of the flesh, have nothing to do with it, put it away. Uncleanness, Paul is speaking of a dirty moral behavior. And it's the impurity now of lustful living. Perhaps you've been around people that just seem to have nothing but, you know, kind of a, a sexual focus or everything that comes out of their mouth or their, their mind is just of a sexual nature. It's not fitting for saints. Covetousness, again, the context is of this sexual or physical conduct. 
So what Paul addresses here is this unbalanced and unhealthy desire for more of it. Understand, when you begin to engage in it, the enemy knows. Again, where we saw last week, don't give, a, don't give any place for the devil. Don't give him any room. Don't engage in these things because he just needs a little bit to where suddenly you begin to desire more. And the studies have just shown that pornography does something. It changes the, 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 the makeup even of our brain and how, how we think. And it begins to create a, a covetousness and a lust for more. It begins to act like a drug. That's where you see so many people getting addicted to these things. Satan knows exactly what he's doing. Don't give in to these things. Covetousness. See, when you covet something, you're looking to satisfy your own self through it. And that's not a biblical love, is it? Sadly, we often see this kind of love depicted in Hollywood or in the media where there's this, you know, pornographic or covetousness kind of desire. And, and all of it is done to just simply satisfy personal desire. That's not love, it's lust. And it's what we get bombarded by in society. Man, Paul says, hold up the true, hold up the biblical view of what love is. And don't settle for something that is inferior or that will never last. See, covetousness on any level is very problematic as it causes a person to desire more but never be satisfied by it. And that's exactly what happens here in these things. You might think, if I grab a hold of this, that's gonna satisfy an urge or a longing. At least I can put that aside. No, it only causes you to have a, a thirst and hunger for more and you'll never be satisfied by it. Jesus says as much when he says in Luke 12, 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You might think you have all that you need to be satisfied and happy. But if it's under a covetous practice or means, you'll never be satisfied. But your life doesn't consist in those things. The word says regarding these things, let it not even be named among you. There at the end of verse 3. Don't let there even be a hint of it or a whisper of it in your circle. Why? Because Paul says it's not fitting for saints. Now some of you might go, oh, okay. Well, I got you there because, man, I'm a long ways from sainthood. I haven't reached a, being a saint yet. I've got some room to grow. So I guess then I've got a little bit of a break with some of these things. That maybe a little bit of a pass in that. Now remember, Paul in Ephesians here has addressed already, being a saint simply means that you're in Christ. You're a believer. When you give your life to the Lord, guess what? You're a saint. A saint is not something you achieve after death or, you know, when you've done a certain amount of miracles or whatever. A saint is who you become as a child of God because a saint simply is tied to that word holy where it means you're set apart to God. As a believer, as a born-again Christian, you're set apart to God. And so you're a saint. There's the saints and the ain'ts, one or the other. It's, it's clear. So live like a saint. Now here's the thing. It's not saying here, Avoid these things to be a saint. Paul says, you are a saint, now live like one. And put away these things. Now perhaps you're saying also, well, okay. Understandably so, but if Paul only knew the kind of culture that we'd be living in, the kind of society where, again, we are just inundated with all things of a sexual nature. 
If Paul only knew, well, maybe he wouldn't be so strong about these things. In their day, of course, they were much more prudes and living with just kind of like a, a shame or embarrassment towards these things. But in our day, this has become such a, an open thing that, you know, we've got to have a bit of a break on this. Really? You know, in Paul's day, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, they've got there in Ephesus the temple of Artemis. Romans said, called it the temple of Diana. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world, this temple. A, a beautiful structure, but a structure filled with sin. As they worshiped this goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility. And they, it, it, she was celebrated and seen in an idol, like a multi-breasted idol, where again, in the worship of Artemis, there were many kind of sexual acts that took place. In the temple alone, there were temple prostitutes that as worshipers would go in and come out, they would engage with these temple prostitutes and engage in sexual acts as a form of worship to Artemis, this fertility goddess. It was, I think, most likely a much more openly celebrated or accepted practice in a place that Paul is writing to than it was even today. Even though we are amazed at how much, you know, sexual sin and pornography has been normalized today, sadly, but yet Paul was dealing with the same kinds of stuff in his day. No, we don't, we don't give ourselves a break going, well, if only he knew what we were dealing with. No, he, he knew. And he's addressing and saying, put it away. It's not, it's not fitting for saints. And then Paul moves on to talk about moving from the sins of the heart to sins that we speak. He says there in verse four, neither filthiness. Filthiness speaks of obscenities. It refers to speech that's designed to incite lust. It's what we would call dirty talk or, or dirty joking. Something that can oftentimes get excused by Christians is kind of like, oh, it's just a joke. May I encourage you and challenge you? If you have another believer coming to you and wanting to share a dirty joke, can you just say, you know what? No, I don't want to hear it. And I don't think you should be sharing that either. If it's of a sexual nature, we don't need to hear it. Foolish talking. This is dialogue that has no merit or value to it. Again, it's of a crude nature. And the word that's used here for foolish talking is morologia. Morology, where we get our two words, moron and logos, to speak. And, and so the idea is it just moronic talk. It, again, just has no place. It's not fitting. It's, it's no value to it. Put it away. And coarse jesting, again, this is the idea of speaking dirty jokes and having that kind of sense of humor that's always reverting back to a sexual nature. Probably speaking of, you know, the double entendres, using the subject of sex for inappropriate jokes. See, the enemy knows that these are areas that have been given special parameters by God. That these are things that are to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife and are not to be held with a looseness often seen in society. And the enemy knows that if you can get people joking about it, holding a loose, a loose view about it, talking openly about these things, then he can get people to be more accepting and engaging in them. It brings everybody's guard down. Instead of joking inappropriately on the subject matter, the word shows us to take a different approach. What does Paul say at the end of verse four? But rather, giving a thanks. Now you look at that and you go, that seems so out of place here. Talking about 
fornication and uncleanness and filthiness, of course, jesting, but giving a thanks. It's like, how did that shift happen? What Paul is getting at here is, again, let's look at the area of sex. This is something that God has given as a gift. He created it. He's designed it to be a blessing within the marriage circle. So give thanks for it. Don't talk about it with other people. Don't use it as a source of coarse jesting and joking and, and, and fooling around. Give thanks to God for it. This is what Paul is saying. Honor it. See it in the right view as God has given it to us within the parameters of marriage. I'm thankful that he's given, I, I give thanks once, you know, one or two thousand times a day for it. I'm just so thankful that he's given us this wonderful gift. That was a joke, but okay. <clears throat> Not coarse jesting, actual, actual truth. But I think the important thing that we're seeing here is that whatever we are speaking, that it has redeeming quality to it, that it's something that is pleasing to God and blessing other people, that it's gonna be Christ honoring. Um, Jesus said, or sorry, Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Moving on to verse five here, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, there's a lot of people that, that do these things that Paul's listed here, verses three and four. A lot of people that do these things and think, oh, it's, it's okay. God's not gonna really deal with that. God's a God of love. Haven't you heard? Sure, I may mess up at times and everything, but it's all gonna work itself out because God's God of love. He's not gonna come down on us. Come on. He's not gonna send anyone to hell for messing up in these areas, is he? Perhaps maybe you're sitting here today feeling a little bit nervous about your status and about your eternal state as you read through these things thinking, oh man, Maybe I'm in trouble over these things. But keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind that Paul is addressing those that continue in these things and live out the practice of these things. They make these things the character of their life rather than imitating the character of God. Now, I don't wanna downplay that and, and, and make you kind of go, oh, so it's okay to occasionally, no. Put it away because we've seen that an occasional moving into it becomes that hook to getting trapped in that. What Paul is addressing is, is that as a child of God, you become a new creation. You have a new focus, a new drive, a new heart that is to serve the Lord. And a person that's engaging in these things as kind of the common practice of their life indicate that they've never truly been born again. And those people that have never been born again they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Now, a lot of people like to say, well, again, how could God send anybody to hell? A lot of people like to say, I, I have a hard time believing in a God that would do that. Or they'll say something like, my God 
would never send somebody to hell. But what they've done in doing that is they've created God in their own image. What does the second commandment say? Shall they not make any graven images? They've made God in their own image. They've created an idol for themselves. The Bible says right here even that no covetous man who is an idolater. Many people have missed out on eternity because they formed God in their own image rather than saying, God, what does your word say for me to do and, and for me to live? What do you instruct me to do? See, rather than focusing on how could God send anybody to hell, why not focus on what God did to spare everybody from hell? And he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to take our place. You see, God is love, no doubt, and a lot of people hold on to that, but we also recognize that God is also a judge. He's a righteous judge. And sin needs to be judged. Nobody would ever give a pass on a judge if, if in a court of law, somebody's standing before a judge who's just committed a heinous crime and the judge says, well, you know what? I'm just feeling particularly loving today. So you know what? I'm gonna dismiss your case. You're free to go. You are deemed innocent. People look at that judge and go, that's not a loving judge. That's a corrupt judge. That's wrong. Justice needs to be served here. Well, in the same way with God, yes, he's loving, but he's also just. And justice needs to be served. Sin cannot be tolerated. Sin needs to be judged. But praise the Lord is that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross. When he was on the cross, our sin was being judged upon Jesus. He took that judgment in our place so that we could receive the forgiveness of sin and that we could receive his righteousness and be made right with God. Thank the Lord that nobody needs to be sent to hell. That we could have eternal life because Jesus stood in our place. Rejoice in that. What marks your life? Is it being an imitator of God or an imitator of the world? Does your life resemble a walk of love or a walk in sin? Because the word makes it pretty clear for us who are Christians that these are things that shouldn't even be named among us. So may we keep pressing into Jesus and see the wonderful love and grace that we have in him. Who wouldn't want that life over a life of sin and shame and pain? God has something far greater and better for us. May we be imitators of God. May we be that sweet smelling aroma to God, but also may we live as imitators of God in this world that we might be a sweet smelling aroma to others that draws people in to say, man, what is driving your life? Why are you so loving and gracious and giving? What's driving your life? May be an opportunity for us to share Jesus with others. Man, these days are crazy and dark, but that's the time that the light shines the brightest. May we go into the world with purpose, not hanging our head going, oh, these days are crazy. And we, we can all fall in that trap. May we be walking in love and excitement for what we have in Christ, knowing what the future holds for us. But may we be a light in the world, being imitators of God, being an example of Christ for others to see that they might receive that eternal life in Christ as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time together here to just look into your word and, and to receive 
instruction and encouragement and maybe even that, that conviction or challenge today, but God, I pray that you would do a work in us, Lord, that we would walk in love. You've demonstrated that love towards us. And Lord, I know that we can fall so short of that, but may we continue to seek you and know you that we might be imitators of you and demonstrate a life that's walking in newness of life as a new creation, demonstrating love, demonstrating grace, forgiveness to others. Lord, lead us and use us, Lord, to be a light in this world as we're gonna talk about next week, being lights. Lord, may we be that this coming week as we demonstrate what love looks like and may point people to you. We pray in your name, amen.